Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bottomless Pit Podcast. I'm going to leave the intro to this one quite short because I think the title of this episode speaks for itself and I want to get stuck straight in with this first-hand account of an author who writes under the name Rex Hurst who, at the age of five, was sold by his father to a satanic drug cult in Matamoros, Mexico, a border town to the US. That's as much as I want to say about it at this point, so let's just dive straight into this one. I'll speak to you again at the end. This is episode 80 of the Bottomless Pit podcast. The Bottomless Pit. Find us on social media and everywhere you get podcasts. You followed the podcast on Twitter and I had a look at your, your profile and your bio like I do with basically when any, anyone follows us. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll read it out here because it says that you were born in Argentina to German immigrants and were kidnapped as a child by narco terrorists and sold to a satanic drug cult in Mexico. Now that that is quite the Twitter bio and uh, I am very, very interested to hear more. No one's ever asked me about it before. so Really? Yes. I don't, I don't think people look at Twitter bios too often. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, sure, sure. That's, uh, well, I mean, why don't we just dive straight into it? Let's, uh, let's start start at the beginning. You know, how, how did that come about? How did you go from, well, first of all, Argentina to how did you end up getting kidnapped? Where were you kidnapped and how did you end up in Mexico? All right. Well, I was uh, born in La Cumbre Cita, which is a, a sort of a large German enclave in Argentina. Do you know anything about Argentina? Yes, I've been there. Okay. Well, then, you know, pretty much everyone's white. Very cold climate from what I remember. I haven't been back there. So since. is that down south then? Uh, the, oh, yeah, the, pretty much. Yeah, okay. Well, it's up in the mountains. It's kind of like right. it's almost a it's all it's almost similar to the Alps and uh, the, just the way it uh, you got that little tinge of uh, uh, briskness to it every day. And there's lots of uh, the I believe my family were vintiers there. Okay. Well, now I understand part of it is, and I wasn't exactly kidnapped per se. I was sold by my whom I assume was my father at the time. Wow. Uh, do you know why that? How did that come to be? Well, it turns out I wasn't. Uh, from what I remember, I wasn't sure. exactly pure. What does that mean? And I wasn't German completely. Apparently, I wasn't actually his son. Now I don't know how he found this out, but. He came. He at least came to believe in a case I wasn't actually his. You know that I wasn't actually his biological. His biological offering that my mother had had an affair with one of the locals down there. Right. Now, when you say that, you know, you believe that you, uh, he didn't think you were pure. Do you mean that in the sense that you that he thought that your mother had an affair, or that was he very much that he wanted a German child? A German child. Yeah. Okay. okay. Both really. She had an affair probably with a local because he told me this. I remember as I was being taken away. Right. I, I take it kidnapped because I don't. I remember a lot of screaming that night. There was uh, a lot. Uh, some of the other members of the family objected to it. I remember an older lady, I assume it was my grandmother, did not want me to go, but he insisted upon it. And I guess he, I guess he was old school, and that he, you know, he was the pater familius, and he ruled with an iron fist. Now that he had something to do with the wine trade, I believe that it was in distribution. Uh, if not actually uh, the, uh, being part of the venture, so he would uh, help. The, the family business would be to distribute wine all over the country, maybe even export it. So he had he had dealings with certain people who were, let's say, good at smuggling. 
Right, understood. Now, this guy, have you ever heard of the Matamaros drug cartel? Well, that ever even really a drug cartel. It's a man named Adolfo Constanzo. Yes, so I, I hadn't heard of this until I read your bio, and I went and had a look for a little bit more information. Uh, and as it happens, I, <laughs> I've been to Matamoros. I didn't know this. So my I've got family who are from Brownsville, so just the border town in the U.S. opposite Matamoros. And uh, yeah, so I, I am now a little bit more aware of, of the location of what you're, the story you're about to tell. All right. Well, I was put on a plane with a bunch of other goods, and this guy, Aldolfo, he is, uh, he was, at the time, he's dead now, he got blown away by the Mexican police. He was a, a practitioner of what of what they call uh, Palo Mayombre. Now, do you know anything about that religion? Uh, no, no, I don't. Okay, it's a fringe religion. It really came over um, from, I, I looked it up later on, I learned a lot about it. Uh, while I was working there. Now, originally it comes... Well, it comes from Africa originally. And uh, when African slaves were brought over to uh, work in the sugar sugar cane... uh, Whatever, the sugar sugar cane fields. Yeah. And a lot of those Caribbean places. um, In the French areas, the French never bothered to Christianize any of their slaves. Unlike the Spanish, who demanded everyone be, you know, convert over Catholicism... The French said, well, you can do whatever you want to as long as this as this work gets done. And that's where you have the rise of all those odd, weird religions uh, around that area, like voodoo, hoodoo, palo, stuff like that. It's all the same religion. It's all based off the same religion. Did you ever read, uh, there was a good book by Chinua Achebe called Things Fall Apart? No, I don't. What what, what happens with that? Oh, well, th- well, he describes, he describes um, sort of the clash of cultures of uh, colonization of Nigeria. And the religion he describes in it is pretty much – the technical term for it is like West African religion or some, something, something vague like that. Okay. All right. So it's basically just, just this ancient religion has been left over where they collect the spirits of things. And it's not just people and animals. It's the spirits of rocks or anything that's considered to, to – um, have some sort of spiritual relevance to it. And they collect it in this bucket, basically it's a cast iron box called the Nangaga, and they do ritualistic things around it. They have candles, which uh, were specially crafted in order to attract spirits, in order to make this Nangaga stronger. And the stronger it is, the more spirit stuff that is in there, the more powerful the practitioner of it. Okay. Constanzo, I believe he referred to himself as a Tete, or uh, he was a high priest. He comes from a long line of high priests. Well, I don't know if the high priest is even really the term. I can't remember the specific term of it. But he was uh, a Apollo worshiper. People believe this down there. He would make spirit charms for people and, you know, had a pretty decent business. Yeah. He himself really believed all this material. Well, the old school Nangagas didn't just nowadays they use uh, bits and pieces of metal to add strength and they say they want to be um, faster so they'll take the bones of a fast animal and they'll put it in this thing if you, yeah. if you google if you google Nangaga or palo altar you'll look you'll get you'll get images of a, like a cast iron pot and it looks like a pile of garbage <laughs> it's really a religious altar how are you spelling Nangaga? n g a n g a Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it looks ridiculous. It's got it some does. paint. 
but that is a very probably whichever one you're looking at is probably it is a very powerful symbolic thing in that religion and, and people believe this i mean that's why you know there's that's why. any place that you know has lower education you have superstitious ridiculous stuff like that appear yes sure i mean this this uh nangaga looks like uh almost like a, a cauldron full of all well, sorts junk. of full of junk yeah that's a good good way to put it yeah <laughs> but they believed this guy constanzo he believed he was third generation he was raised to believe that he was a powerful man he was going to be more powerful they called him el padrino and he was yeah. a narco he was basically a narco terrorist who got all of his people to come around and who who swear the loyalty of his people through this religion now how did it come to be then because so far you've mentioned about the the way that they would use for example if, to increase speed they would take the, the bones of a fast animal how did it then go into the to using humans and involving humans in that well that's what the original religion used to the religion okay. now they stopped it because the mexican authorities or the authorities everywhere a lot of this came out of cuba as well and then i think part of it was uh, then transplanted into mexico um the old school way was to sacrifice humans and they and he wanted to go back he truly believed it now i see a lot of these palo guys They'll hide the religion. They'll, they'll, they'll put some, like, a Catholic tinge on it, right? Mm-hmm. They won't mention the name of an old god. They'll say, we're doing this for St. Peter, and St. Peter will bless you through this ritual. And they'll sort of twist it around this way. Constanzo did not. He went old school all the way. Some ancient gods, I can't remember what they were called. I think it was Zombie and Guru Guru Finda, something like that I remember being mentioned, to give him strength. And so... The most powerful creature on the planet is the human being. Mm-hmm. And specifically, he wanted someone who was smart. He wanted to be more intelligent. So he was looking for people that could give him a greater intelligence to rule over his kingdom, as it were. And that's kind of where I came in. <laughs> okay. So how old were you when this all okay, took Five place? years old. Five, five or six years. years. Now, obviously, I wasn't acceptable to them because I hadn't developed Strange is the same in certain ways um, when you're dealing with intelligence and with uh, spirit things, the younger person isn't as good. But the people who got who, you know, acquired me through these smugglers and gave me to this basically extended cult didn't really understand. They weren't the brightest. They weren't the brightest people on the face of the planet either. You wouldn't believe it. He he had them convinced that he could get shot and walk away, that bullets would just bounce off of him. He would do these magical, I remember, I would help him do it because they didn't want to let me go. But they didn't have a real use for me. I remember them talking about it, and I could barely understand too much Spanish either. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was. Well, I was taken to. Uh, it was outside of Manamardos where they would smuggle the stuff in. You know, before dis- distribution into the United States. And I, I had a sense of impending doom. I mean, I was nervous all this time. I'd been on this plane. They hadn't bothered to feed me or eaten me. And now, you know, they presented me, and he. I remember the first time he looked at me. And he just looked right through me. Steel, steely eyes can't remember the color i always thought they were blue but i don't think they're blue i don't i don't remember but can you describe the environment in which you met him what was it was it just a room was it a, a barn where, where were you it was like i don't know an old an old like a dirt farm essentially it was a shack i believe a couple of the walls were almost pueblo like 
but not Pueblo. Probably maybe it's left over from the Conquistador days. Right. It, was old. it was an old thing. And part of the wall, three of the walls, I remember, three of the walls were stone, but the roof itself was was wood and sort of tattered together. I mean, it was uh, you could see through the shafts. And the floor itself used to have been nice at one point, but it's just been, you know, out of disuse. Wow. So, so what was it then, after you've arrived and you've been inspected for the first time, what is it that, that, what is it that you then were doing? How long were you there and what were you doing in that time there? Okay, I was there for about four years and I was, uh, I was learning. Here's the thing, I think they eventually decided to try to harvest me. What does that mean? They wanted to harvest you. He wanted to meet, make intelligence so that he could, you know, eventually use that in his Nangaga. I think, I think that was the original idea. So to to, to sacrifice you. Yeah, exactly. Or you know, eventually. Yeah. I mean, these guys uh, paid money for me. They didn't want me, but they didn't want to just throw away the money. I guess they, I guess you know, certain amount of thrift <laughs> in their nature. So I was pretty much I was. Uh, cabin boy almost i would clean stuff up i would help uh, learn how to make meals that sort of thing clean dishes do all the thing you know wash clothes all the things they just didn't want to do and then they would give me books occasionally i don't think any of them could read constanzo could read i know he did and his his woman there la madrina they called her sarah yeah uh i think she's still in prison even i'm not sure Let's have a look. I can click. I've got the uh, Wikipedia of, of El Padrino up here, and she's 45 years in prison. She's currently serving. Well, because eventually he he har- I, uh, he harvested some guy, some kid out of Brownsville who was cross- crossing the bridge. I believe he stopped to take a leak, and they grabbed him. But he started doing that. Um, I don't think harvest is the correct word. I don't remember the word too well. It's a very uh, it's a very um distancing word isn't it i mean it make it, it make it you know and, and i appreciate why you know why that would be the case but it really makes it clear that this well they possibly they possibly weren't valuing you know human life in any different way to to animal or object not at all they kill i've seen uh, they they kill people i saw it in front of me really oh yeah oh yeah yeah how would they do that they just shoot them in the back of the head usually or they would yeah. do a sort of ritualistic um paint on their head but uh the, the the cultivation of the bones, putting in the Nagaga was very ritualistic done, but the killing the actual person wasn't that important. So, you know, depending on how they do it, um, a couple of guys, they made them dig their own graves. And I remember, I, I remember them being out in the field and they're making them dig and these guys are standing around and they're laughing. They're laughing hysterically because they think it's funny. Then I'm inside cleaning, washing some dishes or something like that. Yeah, washing some dishes and then there's just pop, pop. And they called me out, and I had helped fill in the graves. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's you as an age between age five and nine. You're you're doing that stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, I'm still amazed at how it seemed to did not affect me as much. I mean, it didn't. It didn't. But, but uh, kids have such a, a resilience to be able to just bounce back from this sort of nonsense, from that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. I mean, but there must be a certain hangover. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, there is. It came back later. But at the time, since kids had and since my idea of what was normal at that point was just so off that I just I just did it. 
And understand, these people weren't nice to me or anything like that. Uh, they would kick me and throw me stuff at me. Uh, you know, whenever they got drunk, I'd, I'd run and hide just to be sure. You know, just to make sure nothing happened. I mean, it was nothing sexual ever happened like that, but I was afraid it might. Yeah. Consider like, uh, okay, yeah. No, go what on. happens to some other kids? Because I looked this up, and I looked up what other kids, and, you know, I'm surprised that they kept me around, really. Why is that? Because they could have easily sold me to some pedophile firm, <laughs> as it were, in which in, in, in one of the touristy areas of, uh, you know, one of the border towns. Which apparently is uh, it was a big problem for a long time there. Yeah, it's interesting because I know that, uh, as I mentioned, I've got family who are from Brownsville, which is the border town of Texas that is opposite Matamoros in Mexico. Uh, and when I was about six or so, me and my mum went over to visit my family and we went for a day trip over to Mexico. And on the <laughs> way back, yeah, on the way back, uh, there were there were issues at the border um, because at the time. So I was tiny and I didn't, my passport was included on my mother's passport. And so there wasn't actually a picture of me in there and it wasn't a separate document. Uh, it's just the way things were at the time. And so there were issues he or hesitancies from the U.S. authorities wanting to let me personally back into the U.S. with my mum because there wasn't an actual, f there wasn't any photographic identification of me there. It was just my name and, and details on her passport. Right. And I mean, and I mean, that was part of the problem. I mean, uh, you know, well, well, recently when they were talking about breaking up families at the borders uh, under the Trump administration and, and yeah. ICE, I mean, there was a real reason for that. It wasn't just doing it. Um, it was because children were being kidnapped and um, by these people wanting to come into the United States. And, you know, they claim that this is their child and they have to stay because of their child. And so they separate the kids in order to make sure that though the, the child identified those people as their parents. I mean, there was a, you know, I mean, they acted like it was just some sort of malice, but there was a very specific purpose behind it. Interesting. I've not heard that before. That's an interesting take. Yeah. Well, I mean... <laughs> I didn't do, you know, I mean, these guys, these guys are human too, that work in the border patrol and ice and they don't want to do this stuff, but they, they, they seen some pretty horrific stuff down there. Yeah. I mean, it, that, that makes sense. Of course, of course they are. When you put it like that, it's just, uh, it's not necessarily the way things have been reported, you know? <laughs> of course not. Well, <laughs> I mean, we can go on about the, about the, the, the media and how terrible it is now. It's <laughs> yes. But let's go back to, to, to what, uh, to your story. Let's go back to that now. When you were initially sold uh, by by your father, do you do you, do you know if he knew where you were going to, who you were being sold to? I don't know. He must have, or must have had an idea that it was out of the country. That it was just something not to be dealt with. I don't know. After he told me in the car that I wasn't his, and that I was, I don't know, as he put it, impure, hmm. or not solid, or not not. I mean, not solid. Uh, something. Uh, well, he must have known. He must have known, that, well, at least that I was leaving the country, that it was probably not a very good end. I don't know if they were involved in smuggling themselves or at least had contacts. I don't think you can not know, have some sort of contact. Everyone, you know, as J. Edgar Hoover said, everyone does business with everyone else. So he must have known someone who knew someone who just, you know, took care of this. Go on. It, was, it wasn't one night. I mean, it was on, it was a several day journey with stops and starts. So it just didn't happen. It happened at least over two or three days. Within Argentina, this is still. Or... Oh yeah, outside. I went from Argentina to another stop, 
then I believe to Mexico, or there was another stop after that, and then to Mexico. And I remember stuff being put into the plane and taking out and that sort of thing. Wow. And uh, on your on your blog on your website that you've got here as well, there's in your about section. There's a little bit of an uh, elaboration on your initial Twitter bio sort of synopsis there, and it says that you were subjected to various humiliations. Is that what you were talking about with regards to the you know the physical abuse that you might have suffered, or, or what 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 is that in reference to? Uh, you know, I mean, I would I didn't know the language too well, so they made fun of me about that. What I was uh, let's say a stress ball. Whenever they got angry about something, um, there's an old joke in The Simpsons. Um, do you remember when uh, Mar- Homer, when Marge work, goes to work at the power plant with Homer, he goes, "Remember, blame everything on the guy that doesn't speak English." That's kind of what it was. Right, right. So you know, and they would get drunk and they would make me do things like they would throw bottles at me. And then, you know, make me stand there with my arms out holding books. And if I dropped them, they would they would uh, they would hit me or kick me. Or um, sometimes I would go without food. They would have me, you know, whatever popped into their head as a, you know, almost a cruel bullying thing. And to, to what end? What was the purpose? Was it just because you were seen as, as not useful to their cause? And, and yeah, well, it's not. Don't forget, it's not cause. These aren't these aren't rational people. These aren't huh. these aren't people that that ha, these people never evolved beyond the high school bully. A lot of the times, Constanzo was different. Constanzo had things partially in charge, probably because you know he was taught that he was taught to be you know in charge of things, but. All the other ones, they were just, they were, they were his idiot bully boys. Think of Dim from A Clockwork Orange. You know, uh, they're uneducated. A person, a person's emotional level, their, their, their ability to see beyond themselves rises with their education. So the less educated you are, the more likely you are to still just be childish about stupid things or assign things like that thing. So, I mean, it was just, it wasn't... There wasn't any purpose to it. It was more. It was. It was a bullying thing. That for it was a momentary diversion. Okay. And was that I was, something? I was that the younger one. Conti- I, I was the, the one. youngest one there. I was an easy target. And was that something that was continuously happening for the entire four years, or, or when did that kind of begin? Uh, that began right away once they realized that I wasn't going to be, you know, chopped up, and then they realized, you know. I couldn't fight back, and I was dependent on them, really. But they still kept you around, and you think possibly to wait until you're a little older, and possibly, yeah, maybe could then they, be used. I don't, I don't know if they thought that far ahead. Right. They aren't. Again, they weren't bright. He would do. I remember, Costanza would bring them around, and he'd like chant, and then he'd do these like magic tricks. Um, Such as, like what? What would he oh, do? Oh, well, again, again, like the fake bullets. Like he, they would shoot at him with a gun he provided him, and he's like, "See, it does not harm me." And it's <laughs> like, you know, obviously, they're not real bullets, but they all believed it. Wow. Yeah. And he would do the other you know, thing. He'd put like a couple of real bullets in first, shoot it, and then give him the rest. And, and they were like, "Oh my God, this is amazing!" And it's like, you know, I, I didn't know what to think. I didn't say anything. Stuff that it's pretty easily to see through. But I think they believed it because they probably probably have been raised around it themselves you know it's a, an old superstition it's been around for a long time they've all heard about it and then they get involved in it and they 
their their will to believe, just like any other cult. Yes. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. I can see those parallels straight away. I mean, it's it's very clear what was going on as far as the brainwashing and just the rejection of anything other than than what they're about, you know. Right. So towards the end of the the, the four years that you were there, you know, you were rescued by Mexican police. Do you remember the no, day that no, happened? I wasn't. No, I was. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I got away. You got away. When the police ran in, raided the place. Oh, so you just ran by yourself? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so talk, talk me through that then. What, what do you, what do you remember happening, and and how did you know that this was your opportunity to to make a break for it? Well, when the shooting started, because they and the shooting until then had always been they'd bring in a couple of people, they'd either you know stage one of their fake things or they'd bring one of their boys over. And uh, there'd be 16 guys around, and they all shoot him, and then they'd cut out part of his like limbs or something like that. The cops all pulled up, and these were not these weren't cops. I believe they were like military. I remember their 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 machines were like green. They were jeeps, okay. and they all piled out, and they looked yeah they did not look like police. They looked like military or paramilitary, something like that, or I can't remember what it's called, some sort of defense. I, I don't remember what what it is, but they started shooting. And everyone else was scared shitless. They were all shooting back, but it was all panicked. I remember one guy had a shotgun, and he was so panicked, he accidentally ejected the, the, all the bullets before he shot him. Oh, so yeah. I took this as my opportunity to get the hell out. How did you know which way to run? I mean, uh, there's bullets flying in, in all directions here. How did Away you? Away from the bullets. I mean, but I, I mean, I'm assuming here that the the army, or the, let's assume it was the army at least in some in some capacity, were surrounding surrounding the place. You know, how did you? Oh, they didn't surround the place. No. Okay. No, they just drove right in. They drove right in the machine. I think one of the, the guys they had uh, one of those. Uh, machine guns on the back of jeeps and they machine gun the cars so he couldn't get away and they told them to surrender and they didn't surrender and then it was just a shootout but they didn't they didn't uh didn't seem to be much tactic except for shock and awe i think they expected to overwhelm them immediately and these guys just you know started shooting back maybe because they believed that the bullets wouldn't hurt them ah yeah that makes sense. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe they just sure. panicked. I mean, their first reaction to when dealing with a crisis was violence. And that's probably been their way all their lives. So I, I managed to run away and I was on the road for a couple of days. At age nine? Uh, ten. Nine or ten. I don't know. Something like that. Uh, but it, it wasn't unusual mm. to see kids on their own at that time. Yeah, of course. So, so where where were you then? I mean, this is... Uh, you're still in Mexico. You didn't get make it to the border or anything. I mean... I, oh, yeah, I, yeah. I made it across the border. You made it across the border. Okay, so you got from the, the cult to across the border into the U.S.? Yes. Into Brownsville or where were you? Into Brownsville. And what were you doing for those first few days on your own? How did you sort of make yourself known to, you know, authorities or whoever it might have been? I went to the uh, police and I told them I was lost. I learned a certain amount of English at this point. So you'd been speaking German initially, had you then, as a first language? Yeah, but I learned that I picked up some Spanish and some English from them because they all, most of them, most of them spoke English, broken English, but they all knew a certain amount of it. And I knew a certain amount of well, the German eventually. Fa- I don't remember any real German now at all. Okay. It's, it's been, you know, 30 some odd years since I have spoken. Sure. It. But um, I went to the police. I told them that um, I was lost. I couldn't. Re- and then uh, I told <laughs> I don't know how they believe me. I told them I couldn't remember my name or who my family were. 
because I mean I didn't know where to go. I, I I knew I couldn't go home. What what happened? I mean, did you go into the yeah? I got system? taken into social services, and eventually, luckily, I was eventually adopted. And you were were you? I assume then you were assigned a new identification and, and all this kind of stuff that was possibly not your birth given name. That's yeah. right. That's right. I mean, I took on their last name, but you know, I I, I was taken. I, you know, they took me to the hospital. I was given you know mental examination or you know psychological examinations, all that sort of stuff. I don't think they took it in their head that I was just lying that I didn't remember who I was. <laughs> Why did you conceal that? It was a gamble, but they all talked about the United States like it was this the old school land of opportunity, that it was the best place in the world, that it was golden, that you can get whatever you want. Mostly it was, for them, I remember talking, it was mostly material goods. You can get whatever you wanted. They had everything. So it wasn't just, you know, opportunity. It was you can go there and you can get all the type of you know, food and clothing and uh, instruments and stuff that you wanted there. And that's why it was golden. <laughs> so why was it that you decided to conceal your name, you, you know, if you did if you did remember who you were when you arrived at the police? I was afraid I would get sent back. And then what would happen? Ah, okay. Now, granted, that probably wasn't going to happen at all. They probably wouldn't connect me with some thing in Argentina. If I'm coming from, you know, the Mexican, and I'm speaking, obviously I had an accent at that point. Must have been very bad accent. I can't even imagine what I sounded like. I mean, I've spent years cultivating this act. They're the one you're listening to, but I'm sure, sure I slip up occasionally and sound have some pronounce things a little weird. But uh, yeah, well, I was afraid I would be sent back, and then who knows what would happen to me? Would they kill me? I mean, you know that that's well, that's the level of intelligence you know for a kid. If you don't oh, absolutely. No, International <laughs> politics are a little uh, out of my depth. Yeah, they're not on your radar, are they, as a child? <laughs> Did you ever come talk about your your true story to any authority as a child, or did you sort of keep it to yourself? No, authority? No. I eventually, I told my adopted mother about it. I see that they adopted me, and then they divorced. I always kind of felt like the, the, the adoption was their attempt to keep the, the, their family together, because she couldn't have kids. And she, in fact, adopted another kid on her own. So I've got a brother that's actually not well, biological. Well, you know, not yeah, biologically yeah. related, but then none of us are biologically related to each other. We still refer to each other as family. You know, that's, But they got divorced uh, about a year after they adopted me. And I, I eventually confided in her what I remember. I suppressed a lot, you know, I mean, I remember being put into that um, foster home for briefly, and it wasn't great. I was there with a couple of other kids um, who weren't the most wonderful people in the world either, but that, you know, they'd all been through a lot and <laughs> they picked up various habits. Uh, you know, one kid I remember, he had, a, he, well, constantly tried to start fires. You know, don't ask me why, uh, uh <laughs> So there was an attraction to him, but you had to keep anything away from him that could start fires. And I mean, uh, he was uh, he was only he was uh, about my age. So at that point, it's a compulsion rather than something anything else. But right. Um, but I do remember having a no one hit me that first day, and uh, I felt an incredible sense of relief. And I slept really well. It was it was uh, on that mattress. I remember that mattress. It was like I put my head down and I just zonked right out. I woke up feeling refreshed. Uh, it was the greatest night of sleep I remember ever having. I always remember that. And the smell, the smell of the pillow, just washed over me. It was amazing. That's, that's incredible. <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> 
So I think, yeah. Well, again, if you're a kid, you're more instinctual than logical. So I put a lot of that behind me. I just focused on, uh, without thinking about it, I just naturally got into the function of dealing with my life as it is now. Uh, yeah, because you're you're doing writing now. You're a horror sci-fi writer. With, you know, you've, you've got. Oh no, I didn't mean now. I meant back when I was a kid. Oh okay. Now I'm 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 dealing with it again as an adult, looking back on it with the, the maturity I have now. And how how are you going about doing that? How is that all panning out? You know, I get very angry, but there's no one to actually vent my anger against. Mm. <laughs> and I'm afraid, I, you know, I, 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 I then go out and I exercise. That's when I, that's when I go out and I start exercising. And I start, you know, running or get on the treadmill and just start going to sort of burn, sweat that out of my system because I'm afraid I'm gonna, you know, take it on people that don't deserve it. But yeah, again, all the people that deserve that anger gone but the anger remains yes yeah part of that is what i channel into my writing um i burn it off that way too have you ever written about your experiences no no i don't i, I put it into uh, i've got a book coming out later on that i put part of it into but i don't i don't know if i'm ready to really delve back in there because that means i have to spend a lot of time mentally going over things again yeah, of course. I mean, how much of this at this point is first-hand memory and how much is it of things you've learned, you know, since you've been an adult about what what the sort of thing was that was going on down there? Well, the sensations, whenever I describe a sensation that's real, uh, the basic elements are, but, you know, I'd say at least 50-50. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, Constanzo, I didn't really even know his name until later on. They just called him, you know, El Padrino. Or, uh, you know, the boss. Wow. I, remember, I look at his face and I remember him. And, I, yeah, again, I don't, you know, I don't have any hate towards him because he never did anything to me. <laughs> yeah, but without him, that cult wouldn't have existed. Right, exactly. But at the same time, he's dead. He's been long dead. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's some residual crap in my life I just have to purge. And maybe it's helping me creatively. Yeah, why don't we talk about some of the books that you're doing and, and the writing that you do? Well, okay. Um, I eventually, the family eventually settled in Buffalo, New York. That's where they're from. So that's where I spent most of my uh, most of my formative years. Uh, have you ever been there? I've been. I've not been to Buffalo. I've been to New York City and then various places across the country. But yeah, not okay. That New York City's not Buffalo. No, I appreciate that. <laughs> home of the wing. Home of the chicken wing. Well, I'm writing several science fiction stories. I have a few out. They were based around an old RPG that I used to, that uh, role-playing game mm-hmm. that originated in Buffalo. That's the other thing, too. Um, once I learned, I got involved. I've, I've read constantly. I got involved in uh, you know all these uh, video games and RPGs and so forth. I think just so I didn't, just as an escape, I got very involved in escapism. And these are based around an old RPG. Now it's 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 not in public domain exactly. They're uh, they're still around, but I'm saying this badly. These science fiction uh, books are based in this uh, particular world, so they're all connected together. The various alien races coming together who don't particularly care for each other, but are trying to resist an invading force from a different galaxy. Well, there are three science fiction books out now. 
all set in the same universe, but not exactly connected together. Uh, it's called Across the Wounded Galaxy is the main book, and then there's several short stories uh, called Twin Villains, and there's one called Spiff Blast Handy, which is a which is the most popular TV show at the time there. All right, nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, I mean, it looks like though that you yours uh, for, again from the, the the summaries that I've seen on your blog uh, and on your site, it seems they might you know they're they're entwined with a little bit of dark perspectives on things and yeah, uh, I can't I can't get that out of there. So <laughs> yeah. decided to use it again. That's how I channel my you know my a- anger is into it. Right. So it's a dark take on things. And um, one thing I like about this particular series is there's barely any humans. For me, whenever I love sci-fi, it's always been the aliens. I always wanted to see the aliens, want to see how they're different, how they're weird. So there's no humans. There are humans, but they're minor characters. Why is that? Because they're more fascinating. You get to look <laughs> at things from a different perspective. I mean, listen, mm-hmm. the original Star Trek, who's the best character? Spock. Spock, yeah, yeah. Everyone loves Spock. Why? He's got pointed ears. He's different. <laughs> He's mannered. You're fascinated by the culture. I mean, that's the problem with most sci-fi being put out nowadays. It's all human-centered. You don't see any aliens anymore. That's that's a good point. That is a good point. I mean, you can thank Firefly for that. I think it started the trend. But then all the other ones, I mean, the ones that are big now, The Expanse, or, you know, Altered Carbon and all that stuff, it's all human beings and, you know, what might be like in the future. And, and, and that takes, in my opinion, it takes some of the wonder away. Some of the fascination you can, you know, you can take the most ridiculous thing, and if you put it into an alien culture, you can make it almost seem plausible. Sure, yeah, that does make sense. Now, my horror, again, I'm trying. Uh, I only got one horror novel out right now. That's the Foot Doctor Letters, which is based on. Uh, uh, that's uh, what happened. I, I, I wrote that. I didn't mean that to actually be a novel. I was actually going to write it as a short story. What happened was a friend of mine died of natural causes, died of cancer, and in his will, I got left um, all of his serial killer books because he he wrote he read true crime a lot on serial killers. So I got them. I don't know why. You know, he left me. He also collected books on human oddity, which he gave to a, another friend of mine. But I got all the serial killer books. I don't know if he was trying <laughs> to tell me something or not. <laughs> Here, you'll like this. So I read them all, and I said. You know, no one does serial killers right in the media. They don't. They're all just shown as killing for the sake of killing, right? Sure. They're crazy. They've been bitten by the crazy bug, so they go out and kill people. No, that's not that's not at all. Looking looking, you know, at their bio after bio after bio of these guys, you realize some some basic facts about them. First of all, according to the FBI, I looked all this stuff up. The FBI, 76% of all serial killers are sexual crimes. Between 74 and 76 are sexual crimes. Now, you'll never see that in any movie or book. They always leave that particular part out for the most part. Mm, they just focus on the actual killing itself. So, yeah, exactly. The death. And they'll talk about Ted Bundy, how he killed that first woman, but then they leave out the fact that he kept visiting her body for weeks afterwards and having sex with it. I mean, I, mean, yeah, yeah, I understand yeah, why right. they leave it out, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, that, that that's an important part of his pathology. Sure. That um, a lot of these guys, it's the sexual instinct turned wrong or just, you know, corrupted to such a degree. And it isn't that he couldn't, you know, uh, that some of these guys, they it's not that they 
enjoy having sex, you know, while strangling someone or like that. It's the only way that they can achieve orgasm is doing that. And that, and you know, as a guy, I'm sure you know, <laughs> the sex instinct is strong, especially when we're younger. Yeah, of course. Aristotle likened it to being possessed by a demon. And you know, when I was 16, I could see that. Yeah. And so, in your book, The Foot Doctor Letters, you've you've uh, written it from the perspective of the killer himself. Yes. Yeah. As he's reflecting back on it, and he him and 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 he's the uh, and, and it is a sexual crime. The reason he's doing it, and I don't beat around the bush. I think I might have made him too real. He's too realistic. You're not going to be able to get away from it. You put it all out there. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think in that case, and there's no twist. All right, there's no unrealistic, uh, you know, Samalayanian twist at the end. Right. That he's yeah. Really, all it said. No, no, it's all straightforward as is. So you don't don't look. You, you don't have to look forward to being disappointed with some bad, you know. Oh, it was all a dream, sort of nonsense. Yeah, I mean that would be disappointing, wouldn't it? <laughs> to be honest. Exactly. But it's done all the time. Of course it is. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, stop, stop! I don't need a clever twist. Just tell me a good story. And hey, where, where can people find these books if, if they're interested? Because uh, oh, they're on. I, it's on. It's on Amazon. It's on Amazon and it's on Smashwords. So, and I got another one coming out probably next year. Uh, I just got accepted. It's called Satanic Panic, and it deal. Part of it deals with my situation down in uh, Matamoros, but uh, in a very minor part. And it deals with um, in Buffalo, New York, and during the Satanic. You remember? It, I don't know if it hit England. You remember the Satanic Panic of the 80s and 90s? Uh, no. Can you can you remind me or describe it? <laughs> well, it was uh, it technically started in the 70s, but then it gained huge crescendos in the 80s, where they claimed that there was a Satanic worldwide conspiracy um, to corrupt our youth through the. This is the one you had ridiculous claims, like if you played certain heavy metal uh, records backwards. Oh, that stuff. Messages. Okay. No, but well, this is serious. People got arrested for this stuff. Psychologists were hypnotizing people and re- uh, getting back repressed memories of ritual, uh, satanic ritual abuse, and those all turned out to be bogus. There was that whole case. Jana Reno gained the power because she she uh, basically did a witch hunt against daycare workers who were being accused of using satanic rituals to abuse their charges. Their charges, and you know, uh, and you look at California. There's a whole swath of them. It was it was a complete witch hunt where uh, tons of people got locked up simply uh, on the allegations, as it turns out, unfounded, and the words were put into the kid's mouth, um, that they were that they were being abused and sexually abused. There was no physical evidence of it, but they took the kid's words as literal. And only, let's say, 30 people, uh, close to 30 people got locked up. They all got overturned except for one. It turned out the guy was uh, had a history of pedophilia. Wow. You, well, you couldn't, uh, you know... <laughs> Computers weren't what they were back then, so you couldn't you know, <laughs> screen everyone out. And then you had the West Memphis 3 case, where those kids got locked up for 30 years based on it. Yeah, I'm aware of that. I do remember that one, actually. But that's based off the satanic panic. They were okay. afraid. And these kids, I mean, you look at them, and it's like, well, they listen to heavy metal music, and they wear black clothing, and they're goth, and all that stuff. And that's the reason they got locked up. Wow. So your book is your book is based around that 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 time what is it what is it going to be i mean is it is it fictional uh it's based partially on fact but okay. I, I took a lot of actual uh, deaths that occurred in buffalo at the time because buffalo was the center of it too okay. Geraldo rivera did a special in buffalo uh because there was a place called 
a, a supposed place called Snakeland where they would do satanic rituals. They sit there and they play Dungeons and Dragons, take drugs and do satanic rituals. And it's a you know it's complete nonsense. I mean, they might have, but they were just idiot teenagers like anyone else. They get drunk, they take drugs, and they screw around in the woods and do satanic rituals. Nowadays, you know, they just do all that without the satanic rituals. <laughs> I mean, and we're not talking about sacrificing goats. We're talking about saying uh, you, you could buy a copy of Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible in Walden Books. You go to the bookstore and pick up a copy of it. Right, right, right. I mean, so, I mean, that's what they would do. They would sit there stoned and just, you know, recite the rituals that he put into it, that he put into that book. I mean, it's just complete, you know, showmanship nonsense, but scared the hell out of some people. So this particular book, which will hopefully come out next year. Well, they said they would come out. They were going to put it out next year is I looked at all this material, all this material that scared people. Uh, I looked at Michelle remembers the Satan seller was turmoil in the toy box. If you haven't read that, you should read it. It's hysterical. Talking about <laughs> all the toys are really satanic. All the toys that we all grew up with are satanic. Like he man, he man is one of the most satanic idols ever because he's the master of the universe, right? Sure. <laughs> the masters of the universe. And Jesus is the real masters of the universe. Real ma- you know, stuff like that. I mean, the theory sounds bulletproof to me. Uh, I know, exactly. So <laughs> I looked at all this and I said, what would the world actually look like if all this stuff was true? If you look, you know, all the crazy claims that all these people made, I said, what if this was all true? What would the world actually look like? And so that's what the book's about. So it's a what if. Very interesting. I like that. I like that. Just exploring that idea. So I think we can uh, maybe start to wrap things up a little bit there. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me about, you know, your experience in Matamoros and, and everything like that. It's just, uh, as I say, I read your Twitter bio and I just thought, wow, I need to know more about that because that, that's such a unique and unusual thing to have happened to someone, you know. And Yes, uh, I, I, guess, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I, I, it's not something I speak about a lot of. I mean, I put it on there because, well, it's a different name than my yeah. actual name. But uh, it's just, I don't know. Uh, it's just my life. Well, there you go, guys. I think you'll agree that Rex's story is truly unique and offers an often shocking insight into an odd mix of the occult, drug cartels and international human traffickers. Not something you would come across every day. I just want to take this opportunity to thank Rex for agreeing to share his story on the podcast and for doing so openly and in detail. Also, towards the end there, we spoke a little bit about some of the books he's written. And if you want to find out more about him or his writing, then I urge you to go ahead and find him online. His website is rexhurst.com. He has a blog at rexhurstspeaks.blogspot.com. And for any bookworms out there, he has a second blogspot site dedicated to classic books, which can be found at rexhurst.blogspot.com. And that's just about it for this episode. So it's just left for me to say, if you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing to us or coming and following us on social media at the BB Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And other than that, I shall speak to you in the next one. So until then, bye-bye.
The Bottomless Pit Podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or follow BritpodScene on Twitter to find out more. Oh.